It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. My name is John Garvey. I first met Noel Ignatiev, then Ignatian, in 1976. I had already been a little bit familiar with some of his writings. Uh, worked you know, closely with him when he was in the Truth Organization and others, although I was never a member of the group. Uh, when Noel and I continued to work together, mostly informally and somewhat episodically, for the 1980s, and then in the early 1990s, we together uh, founded and co-edited the Race Trader Journal. Uh, we did that for 12 years. Uh, the uh, that we felt that that had kind of basically lived out, out its political trajectory. It was you know it was time to stop it. In uh, to, around 2015, a couple of loyal subscribers and writers to Race Trader urged us to start it up again, and we declined to do that. Uh, and felt that the time was different and instead suggested more Noel than I, I that we do something related to race trader, but different. And that's what led to the uh, Hardcrackers publication, which I guess the first issue came out at the end of 2016. Uh, and Noel was really in many ways the profound guiding spirit of that project. So he and I worked together more or less continuously for 40 odd years. Uh, my name is Geert Dant. I'm a professor of economics at John Jay College, the University of New York. I met Noel through the, uh, in the late 1990s in uh, Arizona through my involvement with the anti-globalization movement and uh, particularly through uh, Joel Olson. Um, later on, I was... Uh, close to Noel for uh, 20 years. Uh, he, you know, um, and in, in various different ways. Uh, one way was through uh, an organization we were part, uh, he was not a member of, uh, but he was close to called uh, Bring the Ruckus. And uh, also I uh, co-taught with him at Mass College of Arts. As I was an adjunct professor there and uh, that was uh, a lot of fun. And also more recently at John Jay College in the fall of 2018, we taught a course together with the idea uh, thinking about dual power. Hi, my name is Jana Kurti. I'm so excited to be on this show. I'm a big fan. Listen to you guys all the time. Um, so really excited to talk about uh, this book and Noel today. Um, quickly, I'm one of the editors of Hardcrackers, Chronicles of Everyday Life, which, um, as 
both John and Geert are also editors of. Uh, also, one of the editors for the, this new novel, Treason to Whiteness, is Loyalty to Humanity, which has collected his uh, political writings over the span of over 50 years. Um, I first came to know Noel mostly through his writing. And um, as a college student who was kind of fed up with a lot of the liberalism and the way in which white privilege was being talked about, in academia and activist spaces mostly. Um, and then one day I came across a race trader journal lying in one of the student uh, offices and I picked it up and man, never been the same again. <laughs> so um, it kind of did change how I understood whiteness, how I understood, uh, you know, my own identity as an Albanian growing up in the Bronx, one of the last ethnic whites in New York City. So, and then years later, um, during Occupy, I got a chance to meet Noel and, uh, you know, got a chance to talk with him and was really, you know, really surprised to see how like energetic and how much he really did believe that, you know, um, there, there was so much capacity in the United States at any moment, uh, for, you know, for working class people to come together and change things. Um, and then in 2017, I joined the Hardcrackers editorial board um, and we're kind of, you know, continuing uh, important work, unfortunately, without no. Um, but, you know, we we continue on. And, yeah, we're so excited to share uh, some of that those political writings with you all today. Noel is such an interesting character. You know, before he passed, we were lucky enough to have him on the show and interview him. But it was awesome to pick his brain. And he's just such a fascinating character because in many regards, he is still a boogeyman on the far right, um, somebody that talks about race and whiteness. And it's interesting because, you know, his real views have, ju have just been so eschewed by his enemies. And um, I'm excited again that we can dive into a lot of this stuff. But some of y'all have mentioned the project Hardcrackers, so let's just pause real quick and talk about that. What is Hardcrackers, and how did it come about? Uh, so as I mentioned in the opening, okay, that Hardcrackers was the result of a, an unsuccessful effort by some to persuade Noel and me to relaunch Race Trader. And instead, we reached out to a number of other friends, political friends, personal friends, half a dozen or so, to suggest the possibility of doing something different. That is, John, as mentioned, was focused on the on the, the events and the, and the activities and the and the daydreams and the and the ideas of everyday life as an organizing principle. Uh, from the very beginning, Hardcrackers was going to walk on two legs. It was going to have a print journal, and it was simultaneously was going to have a web page. Uh, I think that kind of at the beginning, the you know the emphasis was on the print journal and the somewhat lesser emphasis on the web page, and we sometimes didn't quite have it all figured out about what should we wear. Uh, but anyway, we, we did eventually make some progress. Ex but what happened then, Noel died at the end of 2019, in November of 2019, uh, you know, sh shortly thereafter, okay, the pandemic broke, and then more or less on the heels of the pandemic, the George Floyd uprising uh, began. And the remaining editorial group in, in the beginning of 2020, around the time where he had organized a memorial for Noel, we made a, a decision that we would we would continue to do the project and see what came of it. And we've been successful at doing that now for you know, two and a half years. Uh, 
I mentioned the kind of the kind of the, the development of both the pandemic and the uprising. Those were very important for the development of the project because we effectively suspended publication of the print journal for a bunch of reasons and focused all of our attention on the web, except that we had kind of a, an abundance of material to work with, both things that we or the editors wrote themselves, along with probably hundreds of other contributors in the last two and a half years. And I my guess is that if you write, if you kind of counted the the post that we did on the uprising, maybe 50, the post we did on the epidemic, maybe 50. And it really kind of it uh, it kind of it transformed, I think, the kind of the sort of the momentum, the, the, I guess the web page at the beginning had been somewhat a sleepy afterthought, and it became instead the vibrant front and center of the project. I was just going to add um, something that I really appreciate about the Heartcrackers as a project and why I joined. Um, and I joined in 2017, which was, you know, this was like on the heels of the Bernie phenomenon, where <laughs> every major stripe of leftist somehow joined the social democratic bandwagon. Um, and I think Hardcrackers for me, um, signaled a group of people that were obviously very interested in politics and being involved when they could in, uh, kind of understanding the terrain, but were not necessarily outwardly political, that they were going to lecture people and tell them what to think about the situation. Or, you know, in the case of after 2016, you know, berate Trump voters for, for who they voted or for being racist or sexist or what have you. Right. Um, so I appreciated that instead of, you know, uh, doing kind of, you know, that, that they would try to understand where people and try to meet people where they were at. Right. And trying to understand the current terrain through interviews, through talking to everyday people, through really trying to understand the contradictions that are shaping the current terrain that we're all living through. And man, there's so many damn contradictions, right? Um, and I think in this way, our kind of original mission that American society is a time bomb, right? Where it's this imp impending explosion waiting to happen. And we're trying to understand, uh, trying to understand it all, right? And all of the ways in, you know, these, uh, daily events shape lives, shape decisions shape how people see the world. Um, I really, really appreciated that. Um, and this, and I think we've tried to stay faithful to that, uh, through the work that we've done in the past, uh, you know, especially after, um, Noel unfortunately passed away as well. The second thing I'll say is what I appreciate about working with folks, um, in Hardcrackers. And there's currently nine, nine of us on the editorial board, including Jared Shanahan, who was one of the editors of the book as well. Um, it really also looks at the possible at the American terrain, right? And I say American terrain because something that I hope we'll get to in this podcast is that something that Noel really contributed to a lot in terms of uh, political thinking about revolution and the possibility of revolution was that instead of looking towards constantly European models, uh, you know, the the Paris Commune or the Bolshevik. I mean, there's people arguing about like. 1917 <laughs> on Twitter, on Facebook all the time, right? And that's not, it's not to say that shouldn't be taken seriously, but Noel took very seriously the Civil War, uh, as a very important, uh, revolutionary moment, reconstruction, right? Um, and he argued that that was more in line of, uh, how things would unfold in the United States, right? 
So I think that kind of attentiveness to the material conditions in America, um, and of course, through a global perspective, but really focusing on what, like, what are those specificities that may be a little bit different, right? Like how race and whiteness function a little differently in the United States than elsewhere, I think is really important. And that's something that I, I also kind of really appreciate uh, about Heartcrackers and, you know, some of the work we've been doing. Why is it important that a book on Noah Gnatiev comes out now? I think it's really excited to have this book out, uh, Treason to Whiteness and Old Humanity, because of what it can bring uh, to a current generation of activists uh, trying to deal with new crises that will constantly emerge. And to be able to know was a really clear writer that would challenge us. And I think will continue to challenge us to these, uh, to these readings and be helpful in guiding us, uh, you know, through the current crises. So for example, uh, originally my first title suggestion was, um, an American agitator and, uh, a Noel Ignatieff reader or something like that. And it was about, uh, Noel was, really focused, as Jana just said, about the U.S. context. Uh, he would be very mad at people or say, oh, American education sucks when people di- didn't know stuff about, say, the French Revolution. But he wasn't really, he was really focused on, um, on, on the abolitionists, the, you know, which was uh, some of his favorite groups in history, uh, and also, uh, like the Wobblies and the IWW, uh, which he was always uh, talking about as an example to use. And I think it's like through these readings, we can think about uh, current crises uh, through a different lens. And so he was he brought out a thinking about strategy, which is uh, we sometimes we forget. It's like we have to be when we try to fight. Uh, for a new world, we have to be strategic uh, to how we do these things. He was always an uncompromising revolutionary. Um, and what I mean by that, he thought, he thought it was like, we, in a book we write about, uh, have an essay there and write about dual power. And uh, so, for example, for he, the way Noel talked about dual power is that, in a sense, you can always, there's always two options in any crisis situation. And... Um, one is to resist the state or one is to side with the state. And the goal of revolutionaries is to always resist the state and official society and uh, use this kind of dual power that exists in any crisis moment and develop it into a revolutionary one. And I think that's really helpful to think about uh, crises that emerge. Um, and I and I think it's also and also he's most famous for his writings about race and you'll see throughout the book from the 1960s, 2019, race was an important component of his writings and his analysis of U.S. history and his analysis of our strategy for revolution. And um, and I would one of his earliest writings in the book is a piece from the White Blind Spots uh, in um, written in 1966. And it's, uh, it symbolizes, I just want to read a quick quote from this, uh, because it symbolizes, uh, what I'm, I'm talking about here. So it says, of all the struggles in which a popular victory would fatally weaken U.S. capitalism, the fight against white supremacy is the one with the greatest chance of success. And so this is, 
it's it's a strategic choice to focus on fighting white supremacy and the goal is not to diversify you know uh anything but the goal is to abolish white whiteness in order to abolish capitalism i think for a new generation of um abolitionists folks who are very disenchanted with both the two-party system and kind of sometimes the limits of social democracy I think uh, Noel is a really important person. And I think more than ever, actually, uh, we need a lot more conversations across generations of lessons that we have learned historically, uh, what that means for the present. And I can't think of a better revolutionary than Noel Ignatiev in the sense that he consistently, and, you know, we're going to come back to this over and over again, but, you know, he consistently wrote about struggles as he lived through them right so for over five decades he um you know he engaged with those struggles and the book in many ways speaks to that right and we divide it into four parts uh you know going by kind of the main contributions that he made and we began the introduction and i think this is kind of really important um noel in an interview before he passed away a year prior um you know talked about his political activism right he said he sums it up in three things, uh, which is labor in the white skin cannot be free, where in the black it is branded. For revolutionaries, dual power is the key strategy. And the emancipation of the working class is the task of the workers themselves. And I would say, man, these three propositions have certainly lived five decades and continue to be really relevant. I think as new, um, we see new waves of struggle, right? Whether that is, uh, you know, rank and file workers in Amazon trying to to galvanize, right, and get together and win some collective power, whether that is uh, the thousands upon thousands of young people that took to the streets for the George Floyd rebellion. Um, you know, I think I think um, as more and more young people are being politicized, um, I think this book and some of the lessons um, it offers will be really important. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll flesh some of those lessons out. So I'd like to add something a little bit different, and that has to do with suggesting to the listeners that the, the, the essays in this book are, of course, very, very important. But it kind of the, the fuller measure of Noel's contributions over all those years can be taken by reading some other things as well. Perhaps he is most well known in academic circles for the book he wrote titled How the Irish Became White. He also uh, wrote a memoir of his time spent in the U.S. Steel Gary Works as an as a steel worker, he edited two collections of writings, one of Wendell, uh, Wendell Phillips, Lesson of the Hour, and the other C.L.R. James, A New Notion. And in addition, uh, we kind of published a special issue of Hardcrackers devoted to Noel in, I guess, the early part of 2021. Uh, and I think that kind of it would be very valuable for people to kind of to look at all of those texts to try to develop a fuller appreciation of what it was that Noel was thinking, what he was trying to do. I think that Geert and Jana and uh, Jared did a spectacular job of picking choices, making choices from the broad array of other writings that Noel had done in, you know, kind of going back to his time before Sojourner Truth, in Sojourner Truth, you know, uh, in Race Trader and whatever. Okay. But there's a lot more still beyond the book. And I would urge people to, to, uh, to, to investigate that. I should mention is that 
the memoir of, of his life in the steel mill is titled Acceptable Men, and that's been published by Charles Kerr Publishers. Fantastic. Well, you brought up uh, one of his books, and we're going to talk about that right now. And he's indeed very well known for it. it. The book, again, is How the Irish Became White. I'm just curious if you can talk about this book in particular and its impact and how it has had this lasting effect on people trying to understand whiteness through the prism of looking at the Irish coming to the United States. I was in pretty constant contact with Noel during the years that he was writing the dissertation and then the book. And he was, as Geert mentioned earlier, he was a very fine writer. He was also he worked very, very hard at his writing to make it come out fine. And his starting point, the argument was, is that in the case of the Irish and of others, is that whiteness is not a natural biological character char- characteristic. In fact, race is not a natural biological fact of any kind. If it's not natural, then it's social and historical. But the question is, well, actually, how, how does something become social and historical? What what is the process of its development? And that's what he tried to chronicle in the book on the Irish of how they arrived as the most desperate, miserable people on the planet, perhaps other than the black slaves in America. And, you know, kind of for a while, it was imagined that they were more or less interchangeable with, with the black slaves and were held in deep contempt by all. But over time, they basically kind of managed, OK, to kind of to make it, so to speak, except for Noel. Okay, Okay, they hardly made it. They betrayed their souls and their futures by becoming white. And then he wants later on, as we worked in Race Trader, the, the argument of the becoming of white is a very, very central feature in American history. And one that continues to this day, day that the, there are many people whose ancestors today, from today, back in the 19th century, Italians, Greeks, Arabs, whatever, who were not considered white who in roughly comparable ways as to the Irish became white. And then once having become white, they became most of the time very determined to remain white and to preserve their whiteness because of the advantages that it conferred. And the the last argument is, the piece of the argument is, if something is historical, if something has come to be, then something can be undone, something can be reversed, something can be abolished. And one of the examples I would suggest of Noel's fine distinctions is it used to drive him crazy back in the days of the early 1990s and the later 1990s when people talked about the need to deconstruct race, racism or deconstruct whiteness and he would be enraged okay we're not going to deconstruct anything what we're going to do is we're going to abolish it we're going to create the possibility for humanity and thus the slogan of treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity and and those were, you know, kind of Noel, much that Noel had written in the years prior to his return to graduate school in the mid 80s was anticipating some of the directions in which you would then go over the course of the next year. But they were not yet fully articulated. He and I co-authored a, a kind of a, an, an essay in 1986, 87, where I would say that the kind of there's the embryonic notions of what the argument would eventually be about whiteness and the, the abolition of the white race and eventually the abolition of all races as a category of any value. So that's that was a key moment in his own intellectual development. And the book, you know, kind of continues to, I think, enthrall people 
still to this day. And I should mention one thing about it is that there are a lot of folks in Ireland who have been taught, who've read the book and been touched by it and see its relevance both to understanding what in the world ha happened to the Irish who came to America, as well as what in the world is happening to the Irish who remain in Ireland. So hope that's not too much of a mouthful. No, I think that's great. John, if I could just say one last thing about the book that I think is actually um, also kind of important is that, and I think set, set Noel apart a little bit. Um, you know, for Noel was very much shaped by Ted Allen and, uh, you know, before in the seventies, um, you know, we'll talk about they had co written, um, an article together, right? The white blind spot is like this kind of major text that was, uh, really engaging the left also at that point and their views on, uh, you know, the, the, the role of whiteness and white supremacy in the labor movement. But I think in the Irish, how the Irish became white, um, I think you really get the sense of, uh, they're different, they're different ideas, right? So I think, um, it, you know, Ted Allen, for instance, argued that whiteness was something that was foisted on the American workers by the ruling class, right? And Noel didn't obviously deny that, right? He argued that, yes, that was true, that the ruling class did exploit these racial divisions. But he believed, and this comes really out in the book, that the Irish did make a choice, right? That they made a choice to embrace whiteness, to secure a certain advantage in this competitive society, right? And I think um, when I read the book, um, you know, I was in college and, you know, I was like thinking about the Albanians in the Bronx, right? And, you know, kind of growing up and seeing how, you know, they too lived alongside black blacks and Puerto Ricans in the Bronx. They also worked in like low service jobs, you know, but once they had secured some level of advantage, man, they did everything possible to keep black and Puerto Ricans out. Right. And I saw this obviously be repeated with the Irish. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to kind of um, that that I think also shapes a lot of uh, Noel's political legacy. Right. The, the 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 understanding that while whiteness is, yes, about so, a social historical construction, there is like a political choice that that certain groups were also making about being included um, and in, you know, and having uh, some competitive edge over other workers. Right. And I think, um, you know, Noel, STO, right. I mean, this is kind of what they were trying to get at um, in the years that they, they worked in, uh, in factories, right. Like how do you challenge that um, in the daily life of how work and institutions are organized and, you know, the ways in many ways, uh, the ways that white workers uh, benefit, right, and kind of choose whiteness over uh, racial solidarity and by choosing whiteness forswear racial solidarity. Ignatiev positive the Civil War and the emancipation of the slaves um, was America's true revolutionary moment. So let's pause and talk about this. Uh, kind of just as a start, uh, I, I would mention that one of the essays that's included in the collection that that we're talking about is the introduction that Noel wrote to the uh, collection of Wendell Phillips writings, which was titled The Lesson of the Hour. And he, uh, I'm, this is from, I'm reconstructing this, I'm not remembering it exactly. He, first of all, he, he tries to acknowledge the immensity of what happened in the Civil War. And first, as a prelude to that, he emphasized, tried to understand, appreciated the significance of abolitionism as a distinctive American, uh, you know, movement, American politics, uh, 
Hillary James, I think at one point, described the abolitionists as the American Bolsheviks. Now, I'm not a big fan of Bolshevism, but in that instance, I'll accept the compliment for them. Um, they were the most determined people, okay, who just basically fought every single day, the radical abolitionists, you know, alongside the slaves, alongside the runaway slaves and the freed slaves to get rid of that monstrosity known as slavery. And, you know, culminating, of course, in the raid of John Brown at Harper's Ferry, which triggered in many ways okay, the events that led to the Civil War. The Civil War then became this extraordinary social reality, historical reality. 600,000 people died in the Civil War. And as I forget, one historian has said is the only thing that could ever have justified that amount of suffering and death and pain was the emancipation of the slaves, which is in fact what did happen. And, and the kind of the war itself was transformed from what might have been considered a conventional war, a war that was going nowhere fast, back and forth, back and forth, just people dying on, on each side and not making much progress, and then was transformed into a revolutionary war once the goal became explicit that the goal of the war was to abolish slavery, to emancipate the slaves. <coughs> and that was accomplished specifically by the opening up of enlistment in the North, in the Army of the North to to uh, to black folks, to African Americans, both from the North and from the slave states who fled and joined the army in many many different capacities, and that basically changed the war into what was a revolutionary war. And for people who are skeptical about this, there are some, a body of fine writings by Marx and a little bit by Engels. That chronicled this because basically their argument throughout was that's exactly what needed to be ha to happen in order for the war to be successful. Then the emancipation itself after the war is just an extraordinary amount of property that was seized without compensation. Okay, all of those slaves who were set free, they were kind of they had been considered the property of people, and they, all of that wealth just vanished. All right, which was kind of quite an extraordinary development. And then finally, Reconstruction, the period that lasted from 1866 to 1877, was a remarkable period of what W.E.B. Du Bois more or less described as proletarian self-activity. He wanted to refer to Reconstruction in South Carolina as the, the dictatorship of the proletariat in South Carolina. Noel argued consistently against a lot of different opponents that even though that period of time did not follow anything resembling a classical script of workers in industrial settings becoming unionized, organized, forming political parties, you know, kind of, you know, run, running for parliament, you know, you know, organizing strikes, whatever, that in fact it did represent a, a kind of a remarkable revolution and needs to be appreciated as a valuable starting point. And one last thing, nothing that the, that the black folk Folks did in Black Reconstruction at the end, even though it was defeated, they didn't ever kind of, you know, poison or kind of like soil their memory by betraying the revolution, unlike what was done in other places, mostly in Europe. And so that's one of the reasons that a set of reasons why we need to have a profound appreciation for the Civil War, for abolition, the Civil War and Black Reconstruction as an ensemble of events. Thank you, John. I think this is uh, this essay. Uh, it was an introduction to the book, The Lesson of the Hour. is is one of my very favorites in the book, and I think it's a really important summary of how Knowles 
views were of the abolitionist movement and um, and and the importance of it. And I want to talk about one uh, characteristic that he talks about in this introduction as the character of uh, Anthony Burns. And Anthony Burns in 1854, he was a former slave who was living in Boston and uh, and the abolitionist movement in Boston was very strong and there was multiple attempts to try to... Uh, uh, so he was caught by uh, um, uh, slave catchers uh, to return him back to slavery and usually abolitionists were able to... Uh, uh, rescue people or uh, release people and uh, and try to uh, rescue them. That on the day of his release, he returned to uh, to to slavery to a ship to the Boston port. They needed two hundred soldiers to protect them from the twenty thousand from the crowd that was trying to free him. And um, so he talked about this kind of thing. Is like. Uh, they, you know, he talked about, he quotes this observer about this, uh, um, about this event. He says, we went to bed one night, old fashioned conservative compromise union Whigs and, and, and waked up stark mad abolitionists. And so, uh, the kind of, he says the pro slavery Richmond and, uh, Richmond paper sets, uh, one more victory like that and the South is lost. And so, it's these events that are important to create for activists that uh, change people's minds overnight uh, when these things happen. And I think that's a really important lesson as well uh, from the abolitionists that he talks about in here. Yeah, I'll just add one thing. I think y'all did such a good job at, you know, explaining all of this. Uh, I When I go, um, I think that this moment is also really important and coming up again today, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, when we were writing the introduction and putting book, the book together, something that we were thinking a lot about was how a new generation of young people who participated in the George Floyd Rebellion, um, who, you know, embraced abolition, right? That's, that was awesome. <laughs> That's dope, right? Um, and, you know, Noel was not alive to see that, unfortunately. But I think that that would have really excited him, right? And I know that on Facebook, he would have been engaging with those young people, right? And he would have um, been imploring them to look to the 19th century abolitionists, which are often kind of taken out of that long historical lineage, right? Or they're like alluded to, but not really engaged with, right? A lot of modern day abolitionists look uh, mostly towards like prison abolition or, you know, the 1960s uh, Black uh, freedom movements, right? But there is this longer revolutionary history that goes back to the Civil War, uh, that goes back to, you know, Reconstruction, to abolitionism. And no, something that Noel talked a lot about was that abolitionists were not a huge group in society, right? They were very much always in the minority position, right? Even within abolitionism, there were a lot of reformers, right? Um but, you know, this small group of abolitionists who refused to make any compromise with slavery and the status quo, right? Was it William uh, Lloyd Garrison who ripped up the Constitution, right? And said no union with the slaveholder, right? The liberator had massive public appeal, right? Abolitionists, as small as they were, traveled the country, agitated for slavery, right? 
So I think it's amazing to see what this small group of revolutionaries who did not compromise, who did not want reform, who would not be won over reform, what they what they were able to realize. And of course, within the reconstruction, the backlash and that and all of that. But I think that there's like really important lessons. And I hope, you know, today, today's abolitionists really look to, you know, to, uh, to these writings and to Noel's introduction to Wendell, uh, to Wendell Phillips, but also other writings. Uh, there's an essay in Hardcrackers too that I also always like the creative provocation strategy for revolution, where he kind of gets at how this small group of abolitionists were able to pull off something so grand, right? And how was the everyday activity of enslaved people, right? Who, as the boys talked about, fled the plantation en masse, right? And in a general strike in tandem with, you know, the Northern intellectuals and free blacks, right? Coming together to, to form abolition. Um, and I think that's, I don't know, I, I always think such a dope historical moment. And the last thing I'll say, it's actually a really important historical moment to look at how White participation in abolitionism was not an allyship in all the ways it gets talked about today. Um, and I think, you know, some of that is being challenged and was challenged a lot by the George Floyd Rebellion. But, you know, you look at a lot of the white abolitionists, they they also sacrificed, took risks. And I think it's a really an interesting way in which um, black and white abolitionists came together. Of course, you know, still, you know, it's not to say that racism or misogyny all of those things didn't exist but together they fought and they also fought for women's rights right abolitionists were also very much uh you know demanding rights for women so i just think it's such an amazing period for all of these reasons and hopefully for a new generation of abolitionists we did a previous podcast with the southern historian uh carrie lee Merritt. i don't know if you're aware of them but they wrote a book called a uh, masterless men um about the collapse our discussion was about the collapse of the confederacy and we discussed how the state fell in part due to the general strike of enslaved people but also the mass desertion of confederate soldiers uh whose removal from society caused the collapsing of the economy and a large part due to the absence of slave patrols to us this always begs the question if if that state can collapse because of those mass desertions and those general strikes, uh, what forms of mass desertions today could have a similar effect? The, one of the things that Noel and I used to spend a lot of time arguing with our opponents, who were many uh, you know, in the, the days of doing race trader, was their accusation that we basically you know, kind of had nothing but contempt for white people. All we wanted to do was to basically trap them because they were kind of hopelessly tied to white supremacy. And we frequently made exactly the opposite argument that we said in many ways we thought we had more confidence and hope in the ability of regular ordinary white folks to rise above the prison in which they were contained by the structures and systems of whiteness to become part of a humanity that was determined to establish a better world, a free world. And and, but that they would probably not arrive at that point on their own. They, they would not, and it was, and it was not primarily a matter of working inside their heads to change their mind and to change their opinions. It was instead a matter of creating and fostering the development of new realities that would confront them with new situations. And I think that 
just talk specifically about the Civil War, Dave Rodiger, another historian who worked in similar territories as Noel, in his relatively recent book called Season Freedom, has some remarkable stories about the ways in which you know, the freeing of the slaves actually happened in the middle of the battlefield. And one of the things he talks about is that when the when the Northern Union Army soldiers confronted black slaves who had run away and were standing there right in front of them, okay, basically they kind of just acted completely impulsively and said, you're done, you're free, okay? And that abolition or the emancipation of those slaves was not the result of an order from on high from the command structure, but rather of simply the instinctive reaction of, of those soldiers who were faced with humanity in the form of a runaway slave. And I think it's the creation of those kinds of moments, and I think what, from what I know of the historian you just mentioned, that can, that's the kind of situation that developed inside the Confederacy in the last year or so of the war, that people at every turn were faced with new realities that forced them to reconsider and to change their opinions, and that kind of basically it was new realities leading to new actions that led to new ideas, and not the reverse of that. Yeah, I was going to say it, it's hard, right? Because on the one hand, um, you know, I think when um, it's, it's definitely a book that's on my my list, top of the list. I've been wanting to read it for a long time. And I think a lot about, um, you know, those mass desertions. I've read other things on it. And it's like, yeah, on the one hand, it's like I'm pretty sure a lot of people that deserted and mass the Confederacy were not doing it in terms of any solidarity or because they wanted, you know, they were really against slavery many ways they were motivated by some self-interest, right? And I think that's an important part, too, to keep in mind, right? I mean, people are, are going to be motivated by that. Um, but I, you know, so I think it kind of complicates the picture a little bit more. Um, but having said that, I mean, I remember during uh, when Trump was passing these terrible anti-immigration laws, right, where, uh, you know, people were, you know, basically... Uh, People's ability to, to continue living in the United States was being called into question. They were going to be criminalized, jailed, imprisoned. Uh, people from certain countries couldn't enter the U.S. And and that moment when ordinary Americans just showed up at airports, I thought that was very awesome. Um, I imagine with uh, the abortion legislation that's happening, people are going to figure. I've seen so many posts, and you know, I don't know how much of this we will see, and I, I hope a lot. But, you know, where people are, are opening up their homes, um, you know, saying that they're going to join collectives to, to help women get abortion. So I imagine as, you know, more and more uh, institutions fail ordinary Americans. And we saw some of this with COVID. We also saw the terrible part of humanity as well. Um, you know, but, but I do think that, you know, as John was talking about, as these new realities became ev become evident, people will react uh I just sometimes worry that, of course, I would want the reaction to be towards human liberation, but we know that there's also these other aspects of it um, that are not. Um, and I think that's kind of like some of the challenges ahead, too. John is absolutely right about that last point. It, it's I don't think we need, and I realize that some of what I said might have suggested this, to believe in a certain kind of magic. So in other words, that as very complicated realities are chains. It's not as if that there's not still a need for some intentional activity to actually make sense of that change and to kind of carry that message forward. Because people can, faced with the same change reality, think 
in very, very, and respond rather in very, very different ways. Now, I don't think that, you know, people can be coerced into thinking the right way, but I think it brings us back, oddly enough, to the kind of premise of hard crackers of trying to appreciate and understand the complexities and contradictions of everyday life and people living their lives in, the, in, the, in those complicated circumstances so we have a better appreciation for the different ways in which people respond, react, and make sense of what's right in front of them. So I think that remains, there remains work to do. Scattered through all times and places To stay in touch, we've relied on corporations They buy us and sell us and charge us To use the networks that we created Baby photos, old friends and vegan recipes Lost in the wind Nothing in this world is free You work for them They go in your memory soon to be building crypto economies Bigger than any country Think about that shit Come on You don't even own your hot takes All this ephemeral communication is trash I'm a poet Why the fuck I need a Facebook page I'm not a free speech absolutist Just not a fan of economists, cops, and white supremacists The center cannot hold That's because today's centrists would have been railroad tycoons a hundred years ago Bezos and Musk dance on the scorched earth This watch channel Berkman's dagger in every verse Hope this one hits for the prisons The houseless and tomorrow's gallows While you're at it, read Nicholas Carr The shallows, zeros and ones, they blind my vision I'm really with the shit, it's obvious who's just performing I came into the world through the bullet holes and key to bars hot My W9's is musician, but that's just how I start Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted There was never peace to begin with Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness no peace to keep, I'm blacklisted There was never peace to begin with There's no peace to keep, no place to sleep Algorithm runs mad, there's no pace to keep Tech billionaires wanna shut it down History's taking hold, you can't stop it now Artificial intelligence seeks to keep the peace Neither predator or prey, I came to defeat the beast We are coming to burn the throne And when we tear it down, you will discover you cannot eat a crown Or feed your brother when his lips have been sealed Or when he's been put in a cell, simply disappeared I don't wanna eat the rich, nor do I dream in guillotines But every time I close my eyes, it's harder and harder to dream The horizon is smoke and all the wealth in the world is morally broke I'm just trying to live, not trying to survive And raise my kids to have a future where we all can thrive Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted There was never peace to begin with Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted there was never peace to begin with, begin with, begin with, begin with. Well, in the intro to the new book, it states uh, the recent resurgence of right and left populisms in the United States and globally has demonstrated the failure of traditional political parties to respond to the growing immiseration of the working class. Let's dive a little more into this. How is this so? 
So I think to start with, we could think about Noel's view on electoral politics, and he hated electoral politics, and um, he never voted, and never would be. He thought there could be no liberation from uh, elections, uh, no human liberation, and he was uh, well. He voted once uh, in some kind of local election in in Boston. He said he re- re- regretted it immediately uh, because of. Um, that person did something terrible very quickly and uh, passed, helped pass some law that was uh, terrible, he said. And now he was responsible for that. But, you know, like usually he wouldn't vote. He wouldn't feel responsible for electing these terrible people to, to um, you know, pass these terrible laws. Uh, but I think it's, uh, you know, he was always critical of all kinds of forms of social democracy. And... Um, and he could never bring human liberation because he thought that only a, a change of the total system could bring human liberation. And people could only be, most people didn't want to vote or get bothered to voting, uh, because, uh, it, you know, it doesn't do anything. And he would always think, I'm, I'm vote with the majority, uh, nobody. And so I think it's, um, he would, said that is not a path towards liberation. And that kind of realism uh, was not, you know, was not uh, the way forward. In the la- in the very last uh, article he wrote uh, for publication, um, which was finished in October 2019, right, and it came out after he died, uh, today, when many place their hopes in a Green New Deal and other schemes which will never be achieved through the electoral system, or consumed by the need to overturn Trump at any costs, are willing to go along with the maneuvers of the party that shares responsibility for the country's desperate condition. It's good to to bear in mind Du Bois' words. At last, we know John Brown was right. The cost of liberty is less than the price of repression. Down with crackpot realism, be realistic, demand the impossible. I would just say very quickly, um, I think in many ways, again, um, in the, just in the past couple of years alone, George Floyd, uh, now the Supreme Court decision, um, but really kind of beginning a little bit back with the Bernie phenomenon. I mean, we have been seeing, and this is happening in the United States, it's happening globally, um, you know, the, the existing political parties, being de- slowly delegitimized, right? Um, I was walking around my neighborhood this morning and I was listening to young people talk. Um, and they were, you know, they were just pissed off saying, you know, why is it that we just have this two party system who's, you know, constantly keeping us in perpetuity, kind of bouncing us, you know, back and forth. Um, and I think a lot of ordinary Americans, some, some ordinary Americans feel that way, right? That, um, you know, and I think, uh, a lot of folks on the left have been kind of driving that point home, right? That is not just the Republicans and conservatives, but the Democratic Party has basically overseen decades of austerity, right? Uh, that have impacted working class people. And I think in many ways, the Bernie phenomenon, all the young people that were drawn to socialism and making all those cool socialist memes that I love, keep them coming. Uh, you know, I think they're drawn to, uh, to, to, to an alternative. Right. Uh, but I do think in many ways that alternative vision still remains to some degree social democracy. Right. And I think this is why Noel and his writings are really important. 
um, because in his writings, he actually very much challenged social democracy, challenged the ways in which, um, you know, the social democratic compromise was unable to, uh, you know, to to challenge, to do away with white supremacy, uh, that whenever social democratic compromises were made in American history, um, you know, they they that white supremacy was still reproduced um, and was still remained intact in these institutions. And the labor movement, uh, Noel argued, was a really good example of that. Right. Um, so I think so I think his writings kind of show the need for revolutionary, extra parliamentary, whatever you want to call them, um, struggles, right, that will remain independent, that will not just be reformist, that will demand um, that revolutionary institutions be built, but that I hope we get to talking a little bit later, that they will also uh, try to institute institutions of dual power, right, that it's not enough that we create institutions that just coexist with capitalism, right, because as the crisis grows larger, guess what? Like daily life is being pushed on us, right? We are the ones now that have to deal with, well, how are we going to deal with abortion? How are we going to come up with all these collectives to raise money so that women can travel, so that poor women, women of color, mostly black women, right, could travel across state lines to get an abortion, right? That's kind of all falling on us um, now. So how how is it that as we or we imagine transformative justice, right, to challenge the prison system and the jails and policing. And so as we build these like alternative institutions and collectives, are they enough in order? Like, yes, they're enough because we need and we need to come together. But how do they challenge capitalism? Right. What kind of power are they creating or are they just going to coexist with capitalism and just carve out some space? You see, these are kind of really important questions because, again, the crisis does keep getting bigger. It's something that's foisted on us to deal with. Um, so I think the question of alternative institutions, of dual power, uh, will become even more important to, to newer generations uh, as the years go on, and we'll see more more struggles happening. Uh, the intro also mentions the George Floyd Rebellion. Curious your thoughts on what uh, whites taking part in the revolt signals and about white supremacy potentially losing its currency and is there a deepening division within whiteness and support of it are the psychological wages of whiteness wearing off do you think in the current period the actor i wanted to start by mentioning that uh in terms of the participation of whites in the george floyd uprising the fir very first issue of race trader which was published in the early months of 1993 included a cover photograph of a group of 20 or so, almost entirely white, what I guess are college students, turning over a bus as part of the reaction to the Rodney King verdict uh, when the cops were found not guilty. And the so that 30 odd years ago, there was evidence of that same kind of development of white folks joining in in a rebellion grounded in the centrality of the black community's concerns. In volume two of Race Trader, a few months later, we published an article uh, called Three, Three Days That Shook the New World Order uh, uh, that was written by the Chicago Surrealists Group. And it's kind of fascinating that much of what they wrote in 1993 it could have been written two years ago about what was happening in the George Floyd uprising. I'm saying that because I don't think that the participation of whites engaged in those kind of crossover rebellions 
rebellions is quite as new as we sometimes think. And it may be it was perhaps an entirely different order of magnitude in 2020 than it was previously, but it's not unheard of. The uh, having said that, I would go about the notion of whether the kind of the the, the bonds of, of whiteness, psychological weights, whatever of whiteness, are being weakened. I think yes. I think that kind of that's the, the first part of the answer. But I think that at the same time, there's a determined effort on the other side of the table to reconstruct an even more uh, horrifying version of whiteness, which is perhaps typified or exemplified by these the great replacement theories that are cited by various mass shooters in different places. And that kind of basically at the same time that there's a, 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 a wearing away or an erosion of the significance of the privileges of whiteness among many ordinary white folks and a willingness, therefore, to be open to new ways of thinking. At the same time, there is a political project that is trying to reorganize whiteness on a much more explicitly white supremacist basis. Uh, one of the things that Noel was very insistent on most of the time during race trader, and I most of the time agree with him, is that whiteness was not totalitarian. It basically was fractured, always has been fractured, and that kind of those who upheld white nationalist, white supremacist views in a refined form were a, a very marginal Force. As a result, for example, Noel tended not to want to spend too much time beating up on berating the fascists, okay, because he thought that usually in day to day realities, okay, it was the mainstream institutions of the society, the schools, the hospitals, the jails, the courts, which were far more responsible for the perpetuation of the system of white advantage and white privilege and black degradation. So uh, I think it's, you know, Kind of, it's a different terrain now than it was 30 years ago because of the emergence of this much more significant and explicitly supremacist nationalist uh, white white forces out there. So <clears throat> that's perhaps not as satisfactory an answer as it needs to be. I was going to say, like, I really agree with John, and I think the these forces, um, I think to the the, the decomposition and recomposition are kind of two sides of the same coin and they're responding to each other. Right. So I think in many ways, um, the growing like far right, uh, that's really grappling grap like, or, um, talking about like white, uh, white ethno nationalism or, um, who was it? The, um, the, the guy, the Peyton Gendron, right. Who drove, uh, from, Conklin, upstate New York, to East Buffalo, parked his car outside this market, grabbed a assault rifle, and, you know, just shot uh, with the aim and an intent to shoot black people, right? Um, and as John was saying, was really kind of, you know, shared a manifesto that cited the great replacement theory, which is a white nationalist theory. But, I, you know, I think that those kinds of sentiments are not also just coming out of nowhere, right? They're coming out of, like, concrete material transformations. Um, in, you know, in, uh, in how people are experiencing life, right? They're also, um, in terms of the, 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 some relative advantages or privileges of whiteness are being eroding, right? So you are seeing kind of a more of attempt to hold on to that, perhaps. Um, but I do think it's, yeah, it's a terrain that I think we need to continue kind of looking at. And 
I mean, that's part of, I think, what I do see to some degree, the Hardcrackers project hoping to kind of also grapple with, right? Like, how do we understand, um, on the one hand, large numbers of white Americans at a moment's notice, right? Taking to the streets, um, against a terrible, this terrible, wretched status quo, right? And on the other hand, white vigilantes also coming out of the woodwork, uh, and being against, you know, Black Lives Matter or any, you know, any kind of like liberatory social movement. So I think those are both sides of the same coin. Um, and I think when we were writing this and, you know, now that we're two years in, initially, I think there was a lot of optimism about so many, uh, especially young white Americans who showed up to protest and didn't just hold signs, right? They actually defined the mandates of liberal anti-racism. They took action. They burned stuff down, you know? Um, so I think that was very optimistic, but then also kind of seeing the white vigilantes in the growing far right, uh, makes the terrain really muddled. Um, and yeah, I guess we're all admitting that that's the terrain that we're facing. And I think we just need to kind of understand it more and, and talk with people and keep an eye on, um, eye on things as they develop. When I first, uh, met Noel, he was giving lots of talks and they were, Similarly, uh, usually titled uh, Abolish the Right Race by Any Means Necessary. And he would talk about the three main uh, people or um, institutions that would focus up, focus on, you know, upholding the right race. And that was the boss, uh, the cop and the teacher. And uh, he would talk about these institutions as uh, a way that uh, the right race is uh, upheld. Um, then he would also talk about like uh, how people that the class of people that Barack Obama or Eric Holder represents don't like this and want to try to abolish whiteness without abolishing capitalism and how is that possible or not. But I think uh, with, with regards to George Floyd, Noel would have been very excited about the George Floyd summer. Uh, and I remember... One time he was talking uh, shortly after 9-11 at the New England Anarchist Book Fair. And uh, he was and people said, what should we do? And he said, oh, we should march outside and we should march to the police department and burn it down. And it's like, uh, you know, so he was always excited about uh, those kind of different things. Uh, and so I think he I think he would have been very excited about uh, George Floyd and his possibilities and how it's reshaping the ideology um, you know, of, of how we think about the police and also about how revolutionaries should intervene into these things to push an anti-state, uh, agenda. How do we see January 6th in this light? Is this an attempt to re-cement whiteness as we were sort of, uh, kind of alluding to, uh, within American society? It seems like January 6th in many ways was in reaction to the rebellion in 2020 and Trumpism itself is this attempt to reconstitute whiteness as it sort of begins to fall apart. So when the three of us were preparing for the, uh, I hope it's clear that we've been, we were very well prepared for your questions. <laughs> uh, only kidding that uh, I suggested that this is my own personal view that I don't think that January 6th, the January 6th people who kind of massed there at the Capitol, or at the Trump rally, were primarily preoccupied with the question of re-cementing 
in whiteness. Uh, I think that their motivations are much more complicated and much more varied and, and certainly hard to be precise about because it's a jumble. And not, not even mentioning all of the conspiracy theories that are part of the mix. But the example that I kind of cite in my that's helpful for me is the uh, treatment that Marx advanced about the lumpen proletariat in his book on the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. And one way of characterizing that lumpen proletariat is not simply to imagine that they are like the dregs of society, the criminals, the pimps, the hustlers, whatever, but a much more complicated and complex grouping of people who are united by the conviction that they can only imagine that the present is going going to go on forever and that it should go on forever and that that is their political horizon and if necessary okay they will be prepared to act in a rather dramatic ways to defend that presence against the possibility of real or imagined threats to what might be considered their way of life uh, and that i think is what gives rise to the observations that so how many of the people who were in the capital turn out not to be be kind of, you know, poor truck drivers from northern Alabama, but turn out to be contractors and travel agents and people who live in the suburbs and people who have relatively prosperous lives. They are determined to hold on to that, the misery of those prosperous lives. And that whiteness is part of that, but I don't think it's a central element. Yeah, I'll, I agree. And I'll, I'll just add that I think, um, you know, obviously, so part of the Hardcrackers project, we actually... I know Jared has written on this. We've kind of also tried to co uh, to cover some of that, you know, terrible like pro-Trump, of course, leading up to the January 6th. And, you know, to not see them as like crazies, but to kind of see that, yeah, this was a determined kind of like pro-insurgency, uh, you know, that was in many ways, as John was talking about, trying to defend their way of life. But I think part of as we're talking about whiteness going through a decomposition, recomposition, I mean, I think we're also seeing similar things happening among, you know, the pro-Trump, the, you know, the QAnon, the far right, right? Like all of this is kind of also changing and um, undergoing through its own transformations. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. I don't know. I think a lot about back to the 1970s, how, you know, the law and order movement was this like very specific, um, very specific response to the gains of the civil rights movement, uh, to some degree, the war in court, all of this, right? Um, and, I, you know, there was a very sizable part of white Americans that fought against integration, right? And I think, what, you know, when I think back to that era and, um, you know, I, I always thought growing up in America, like, whatever happened to those people, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it, it's not to say that a lot of kind of the, you know, not all of the far right is just motivated sheerly by white supremacy, but the color line is an important part of life in America. It shapes life. So it's, it's an important right way of part of these far right groups. But I agree with John that I'm not sure that we could see the January uh, 6th rebellion strictly through, uh, you know, a, a reinstatement of whiteness. Right. Uh, but I do think it's a, a, a big part of it. Um, but yeah, I think all of these groups are kind of like, like changing um, and coming together kind of in really interesting ways that um, we should look at further. I'll accept that amendment to what I said, Jana. 
<laughs> Great. Well, I think uh, just tagging on one other question on that thread, um, if there is indeed a civil war or a tension within whiteness, how do we add to this fracturing and its ultimate toppling as these tensions develop? One of the things that I, you know, I wrote quite a bit about in years gone by was the need to develop strategies and tactics to to break up the white bloc. And the, the example that I remember most vividly is when I, I wrote a long essay about the events in Ferguson. Okay, when Michael Brown was murdered by the cops and the, the people in Ferguson, okay, responded by rebelling. And the in order to understand that, I did a lot of research on on the kind of on St. Louis and it's, you know, kind of its history and its environs. And one of the things that stands out remarkably is that in St. Louis, okay, the city itself, the city proper is a small fraction of its one size, but the suburbs have exploded. But the suburbs for the most part are white enclaves, which are dominated by the views of, you know, kind of the, the white cops uh, effectively. And that, Kind of the uh, what the, what needs to happen I, then and now is that there need to be efforts to go into the heart of those white blocks and to act outrageously, to do things to confront them with the hope that the actions of confronting, you know, kind of as has happened a bit in the George Floyd rebellion, will in fact challenge the solidity of that white block. And I think that that the what 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 could contribute to the further development of the metaphor of a civil war is ruptures inside the, inside the, the white bloc, as perhaps occurred in some days of the civil rights movement in the 60s, or perhaps more specifically in some of my personal history, the ways in which the anti-Vietnam War movement, you know, kind of basically in a period of relatively short period of time, was able to transform the kind of mass sensibility of support for that war across America by engaging in kind of both rhetorical and actual acts that confronted the, the kind of the, the get along to go along mentality. Uh, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I spent more uh, years in my in late 60s and 70s fighting with my father and other people about the war. I don't know that I ever convinced him, but I know that, you know, kind of the, the confrontations had and multiplied by many hundreds of thousands and millions of similar confrontations were incredibly valuable in shifting the landscape. So, You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. So in the book and also within this conversation, we've mentioned the term dual power. What did Noel and what do you all mean by that and why is it important? So for Noel, uh, the essence of dual power was conflict, struggle, civil war, and not just creating alternative institutions or the gradual seizure of power and um there is you know if Noel would argue that in every revolutionary moment they've always you know revolutionary moments are situations where at least two social forces uh would vie for power 
and that uh, dual power, this dual power exists in all um, working class struggles and arises spontaneously. And it's a task of revolutionaries to recognize and extend these moments of dual power. And that these uh, dual power situations uh, that, that exists uh, are, you know, are the, should be guiding us as strategies for radical social change. And so the essence of that, to some extent, in the strategy would, would be that um, there's always these two options in any kind of crisis that emerge. And one is to side with official society and the other one is to resist it. And, um, and that, the, you know, these solutions to this crisis exist within those and it's their guide of revolutionaries to push for one and not the other. Um, and Noel also uh, talked about dual power as kind of a, as a, as a, not just a political strategy, but also, and not just a military situation, uh, but also as a historical, um, you can, a, a way to characterize uh, historical situations that are always uh, kind of a periods of time, social forces fighting against each other, and that they are, the situations of dual power are always inherently unstable situations uh, within the same kind of geographical area. I mean, or I can add that kind of the function of a kind of power strategy is to look for the new society within the shell of the old and try to figure out how to bring that closer. I, I would just add, Garrett, is that there is a, you know, an essay in the book, in the collection, okay, that specifically is uh, the text of a speech that Noel gave contrasting and comparing the kind of the approach of alternative institutions with that of dual power. So the 25% of the country or so that is deeply tied to Trumpism, has this block always been there? Has it gotten smaller or bigger? And how do we try and pull people away from it, if at all, from Trumpism? You know, do we only offer antagonism? Do we try to do things like table at gun shows? Or is it both? Is it neither? Well, I, I, I would start with saying for Noel, um, nobody is ever hopelessly lost, uh, and that, um, and that the reason uh, that people are fed up with a society that exists and see things wrong and just want something new and something um, uh, and want a total change, and so only a total change and alternative can lead people away from those kind of politics that we, in, instead of, you know, small incremental changes. Um, I also think that part of what Noel would argue or argued was that uh, the Trump phenomena was a kind of response to the kind of deep alienation uh, that people face and looking for forms of community. I do think, obviously, it is a significant number, right? I mean, um, I forget in the last election, you know, to return to that whatever moment, I remember watching the numbers. And, you know, it was a very tight race, right? It was, you know, a very large section of Americans who did vote, right, did vote for Trump. Um, and I think there's been a lot of political analysis to try to understand that, right? Like, why did people vote for him? Um, how did whiteness? Um, you know, the, the, um, the revanchist politics, like all of these kinds of things play a role in it. Um, so I think a lot of political analysis has happened for that. But I, I mean, something that I think all of us would be in agreement with is that, you know, we're not going to be able to 
I think this is the part about whiteness too, is like, you're not going to just get to the hearts and minds of people, right? Uh, people are going to be involved in things through the, through the course of struggle, right? So yeah, individual hearts and minds can be changed here and there. But, um, I do think it comes down to particular moments, right? So I was thinking a lot about the Roe v. Wade moment, for instance. Um, and here wondering, if, you know, a, a big part of who voted for Trump was white women, right? I mean, white women were kind of being at one moment scapegoated for Trump's victory. You know, so I wonder, are we going to see some changes in that? Um, I, to, I, to be honest, I quite hate these um, <laughs> stupid categories that like polls come up with. But for the sake of this conversation, you know, I, I was wondering a lot about Roe v. Wade, um, you know, and how some of these Trump women, if so, maybe not the hardcore Trumpists, We'll think about that, right? Uh, how will it impact them? So, you know, I, I have some, I mean, hope, I guess, or optimism that some things will, will change, right? But again, um, I'm not sure that how much like tabling, leafleting, uh, one-to-one conversations is going to do that. I think those are important things to do, of course, um, you know, and keep at it. But I do think it has to be kind of these, uh, particular moments. And then the second thing I'll say is, um, the right, uh, Trump has done a very good job at making, like, basically making the left into this amorphous blob. Uh, you know, I, I can't, like, a lot of, if you listen to Fox News, there's always these tirades against the left. The left wants us to be ashamed of America so they could replace America is actually a big part of the great replacement theory. Um, and I think as a leftist, as a revolutionary, I'm like, I want to do everything possible to distinguish myself from the Democrats and the liberals, because I do think there's a very sizable number of Americans who actually quite hate the Democrats and should. Um, but the, the way that the left is being lumped in this moment is also, uh, you know, quite ridiculous. And I think sometimes harmful in the ways that it's, you know, we're not able to distinguish our politics um, in many ways. And I, I think also this is a moment for revolutionaries to really distinguish themselves from liberals, from the Democratic Party, um, and to kind of like try to draw more visions of what are some of the things that we stand for. And um, I think we'd be surprised that actually a lot of people would be down for free stuff, <laughs> you know, not like being exploited at work, right? Kind of a different vision of society. So that's that's kind of my response, I'd say. And just want to add one thing about, I think for Noel, it was never just about uh, education or convincing people. It's about changing realities that will change people's minds. Uh, like, like, for example, with the Anthony Burns uh, example that I gave earlier. Do you see any projects currently being done or certain things that can like begin to chip away at some of this or engage people? Uh, you know, no, I mean, right, right off the top of my head, although my, my knowledge is limited by a lot of things. Uh, but I would kind of echoing something that Jana began to talk about at the, in the wake of this Roe v. Wade, uh, reversal that I, I mentioned in, before we started the, uh, the recording interview that Heartcrack is going to be publishing a series of posts that hopefully chronicle the history of the women's liberation and abortion rights movements over the course of the last 50 years, especially with the, the intention of trying to differentiate <clears throat> the characteristics of the most radical moments 
of that movement as compared to the kind of more typical moderate movements, okay, which were framed by the, 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 the supposed victory of Roe v. Wade in the first place, which moved the entire frame of activity from the streets and from direct action to litigation and legislation and voting. And I think that the it may well be that, that in the course of this next year or two, in response to the consequences of the decision, where people are going to be faced with kind of new forms of people suffering, new choices to make about how to help, what to do when someone is in a desperate situation, and, and new possibilities for breaking laws or, or new, new necessities for breaking laws in order to protect women's lives and their freedoms. So that it may be, I don't have anything to report of what's already, you know, on offer, but it may very, we should pay very close attention to events as they unfold over the course of the next year or so in that particular context. I also just want to add that I think, you know, y'all are doing this podcast, right? It's going down um, and do a lot of like stuff about news, what's happening. I, I do think that um, when I look at uh today's generation um you know young people that are being politicized by they were politicized by george floyd now roe v wade i mean i saw so many things like on social media especially gen z right you know 19 year olds 20 year olds who are talking about what this means for them right we know that young people specifically you know already had a limited access to abortion right due to parental rights and all this stuff but i do think like I do think more than ever there exists all of these outlets for people to 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 for their ideas to be challenged in some ways at the same time for their ideas to be reaffirmed right if you listen to like Fox News or something so I just I just think it's such an interesting moment um I can't say like this one organizing project is doing this great thing that we should all follow but I do think that um people are being exposed so all kinds of ideas. And I think for the first time, you know, I'm in my 30s, don't want to date myself too much. But, you know, I remember uh, being like a teenager or being in my 20s and that like a lot of like left perspectives were not as main, quote unquote, mainstreamed as they are now. Right. And today there's far more podcasts. There's far more conversations. Uh, people are like animated by this. Um, so I just think th- these are really good developments. And I just, you know. I, we don't know where they may be headed, uh, but I think that's an important part of it. So also, you know, big ups to you guys for doing all this good work, too. You know, I think it's part of it as well. Oh, thank you. Well, with that kind of spirit in mind, I wanted to ask, you know, post-rebellion, in our view, one of the biggest tasks is to bring uh, new people into the work, into organizing, into engaging in different projects and different struggles and at the same time, uh, many people are totally burned out, you know, from everything from, you know, four years of Trump to the pandemic, to the rebellion, to repression, to doing mutual aid projects nonstop, to, you know, fighting fascists. This intense transition from street battles to kind of like in- envisioning what kind of like mass community organizing would be or now, you know, how to respond to you know, the recent decision by the Supreme Court can be very daunting for some people. And I know there's uh, a lot of younger people are also kind of wondering, like, you know, how to proceed and kind of in the changing terrain, especially after coming out of being activated by George Floyd. And what are your thoughts on these tensions, especially as folks that have been around for decades and have seen so many things change? 
well, I guess I would suggest that learn. Uh, we need to learn again about all the things we need not to do. Uh, and so like, we need, for example, not to reinvent and reorganize traditional, stupid, dumb left wing organizations uh, and specifically in their sectarian forms. We, we need to develop and build organizations and networks that are attentive to kind of social and psychological, if not physical, well-being of their participants, that we need to create new forms of learning how to argue hard without resorting to you know, humiliation and, you know, kind of uh, and, 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 and bullying and things of that sort. So, I mean, I guess that I, I rather than I don't think I have, have a, other than what I said previously about the possibilities of a new women's liberation movement, which I have. I'm optimistic about that. I just have some advice to give about the kind of organizations we need to imagine that are adequate to kind of sustain and nourish people's, you know, human development as well as their rebellious spirits. And, and uh, our, unfortunately, the track record on that is not great uh, in general. And I think going back to hardcrackers, ending with hardcrackers, that's part of, of the ethos of what the Hardcrackers project has been about is to imagine a way of doing broadly understood political work, both in terms of our interactions with each other, our interactions with a variety of people who contribute to the journal and to the blog. And when we do have events to try to imagine them not being boring, stupid, didactic and you know overbearing, but instead to have a different kind of sensibility to them. I think if we did that, we would have some interesting possibilities. I yeah. say here, here, definitely agree with John as an OG. Very well said. <laughs> well, we've been talking for a while now. One last overarching question, um, you know, with some liberals predicting America becoming fascist by 2030, you know, we had the recent um, Supreme Court decision and Trumpism not going away, although Trump may leave the stage as recording this, you know, there was just another bombshell that came out today during the hearings on January 6th. I'm just curious, you know, what would Ignatiev say perhaps about the coming terrain ahead of us? And what advice do you think that he would leave us with? When I knew him for, for the last 20 years, he was never very concerned with uh, the United States becoming fascism or fighting fascism for two reasons. One, because uh, the United States doesn't need fascism because it has whiteness. And, um, and also that he thought that the way to, uh, reach the people that are being, that are becoming fascist are because they are pissed off with the world that we live in and they're mad as hell. And the reason and little reforms won't do it. And the only thing that can win those people over to the side for freedom uh, is to, uh, you know, replace the whole system and challenge the whole system. And nothing but um, changing the whole system can win anybody over. And that's what he always kind of pushed uh, around the kind of questions of fascism. And I think that is what he would leave us with is that nothing but total change can win people over. So how can people buy the book? Tell us again the title and also, you know, tell us about Hardcrackers. How can people follow the work that y'all are doing? 
Excellent question. Um, so again, treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. The Noel Ignatia Freeder is out today uh, through Verso. So you could just go to their website and order the book and they'll deliver it to you. We really hope that folks read it and engage with it. Um, again, you know, this this is, um, you know, these are meant to be essays of provocation of, uh, of people, you know, of, the hope is for people to engage with the essays and take it less as a gospel, but more as, um, you know, an engagement with uh, Noel's ideas through the years, through 60 years of uh, political activism. The, the book will not be available uh, at the moment through the Hardcrackers website, but uh, Acceptable Men, Noel's memoir about working in uh, the in the steel mill uh, is available to the Hardcrackers website as well as uh, the special issue about Noel Ignatiev as well as other uh, issues uh, you can order directly through the Hardcrackers website and and so within the special issue of of Noel uh, that came out in the spring 2021 uh, we put in a discussion um, an email exchange between Noel. Uh, and Joel Olson. Um, and I think that's an appropriate way to think about why the book will also be useful. That, uh, the Treason to Whiteness book is also useful. It, it, it's about something else, but it becomes about something about why do we argue and why do we write stuff and why do we promote stuff and what kind of impact does that have? And, uh, when they're, when Joel Olson and Noel Ignatieff are writing back and forth, uh, which is, uh, an edited version of this is in, is in this issue, um, uh, uh, Noel, uh, points out three reasons why he argues, um, and, and writes to that extent. He says, uh, one is to help understand his own point of view, also because he likes to push buttons, and, you know, he says that some people, he says, believe like you and I uh, are moved by arguments. And Joel wrote, uh, you know, a following response to that. and says he would add a fourth reason. And he said that there is, uh, you know, when you read something that in, and read a good argument, you can have a click moment. Like you already believe some of these things, you understand some of these things, and it makes a, it clicks in your, in, in your experience. Um, it clicks in your head. That's something that makes sense. And so Joel writes to Noel saying, that was my experience when I read the first two race traders. Uh, for example, uh, I think it's consistent with what Phillips meant of the goal of moral suasion. And eventually, hopefully, some folks can be pulled off the fence towards your side and, uh, you know, towards our side. And I think that is uh, the goal of uh, putting this book together is to hopefully people read it. They can give a click moment to some uh, aspects of it, and they can be people can be won over to our sides. And the last thing I'll say, just a very a short pitch for Hardcrackers. Um, John mentioned that we're soliciting interviews um, and reflections on um, abor- uh, abortion activists, uh, folks that have been doing groundwork prior to Roe v. Wade. You know, back in the day, today, years ago. Um, and just kind of in that general spirit, we always solicit submissions. You could submit something to the blog or to our print issue, um, you know, and please send it to editor at hardcrackers.com and we'll get back to you. And, you know, again, we just want to thank is going down for 
having us on the show. Um, we appreciate it. And hope folks go out and buy this book. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.